0: The Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 635 for Sunday, December 11th, 2016.
1: And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gap, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We answer all that. We share all that. Kind of like car talk for Apple geeks, for those of you that know what that means. The goal is for us to each, myself included, John included, for each of us to learn at least four new things each and every time we get together. That's right. Yeah. It 2016 will be known as the year where we bumped that number from three to four and have stayed there. It's a good thing. Sponsors for this episode include Drobo, drobostore.com slash actually no slash. You just go to drobostore.com where coupon code MGG two zero saves you 20% on uh, most of the stuff that you'll find there. We'll talk more about the specifics of that in a moment. Uh, At smile, smilesoftware.com slash geek where you can give the gift of smile and we'll give some examples of that uh, a little bit later as well as harry's at harry's.com where coupon code mgg saves you five bucks off of some of the best and least expensive razors that i've ever experienced i'll talk more about that too in a moment right now here in durham new hampshire i'm dave hamilton and here in Fairfield, connecticut John how you doing today mr john f braun glad i'm
0: inside not outside
1: it's cold in new england today it was 18 the last time i checked uh 18 fahrenheit for those of you um <laughs> but, well All the rest I mean, of the world yeah yeah everywhere else <laughs> but here that's right so you know yeah yeah probably about 50 percent of our audience is not here in the usa i, I think i don't know it's i haven't haven't looked recently but that wouldn't surprise me it's somewhere u s is somewhere between like fifty and mid- top end maybe seventy percent but now there's a there's a sizable not non u s contingent to our audience so. yeah yeah eighteen fahrenheit is not um it's not good it's it's cold i' I'm, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna lie it's cold in the studio today even though i have the the nest set to come on early enough to get it warmed up i i think it 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 usually by midwinter it it has calibrated itself so that it knows what to do but yeah. um
0: but no, not yet it doesn't so that's the problem with the machines, man yeah, sometimes they just don't get it right <laughs> that is true uh, as I've just found yes
1: talk about it later that's right, yeah, so we've got a lot to go through today we've got some tips uh we've got a follow up we're going to go through st- some of the follow up questions that you folks have sent in about the the router show that we did as promised. And uh, and we've got some questions. So let's start with with those, shall we, John? And we'll go to Larry first here. Larry writes, uh, I finally upgraded my MacBook Pro 13 mid 2012 to Sierra this week and all is reasonably well. The one thing that isn't uh, is a quirky new feature in the male contextual menu in the good old days, i.e. last week. I used to be able to control-click on a sent message and use the Move To command to place that sent mail in a mailbox of my choosing. Then, if I had more sent mails to go to the same mailbox, the contextual menu would say something like "Move to X again." In Sierra, that's been replaced by the great outwards Move To Predicted Mailbox. When it doesn't have a mailbox to suggest, when it does have a suggested mailbox, it couldn't be more wrong. Who knows what's triggering those suggestions? I don't, he says, but they aren't even close. So is there a plug helper app or workaround to restore the move to X again feature? Or perhaps is there a way to make the predicted mailbox algorithm smarter? Uh, so my answer uh, on this one isn't necessarily going to be helpful, but it might. My advice is to use mailacton uh, at smallcube.com, though that is it's awesome, to be perfectly honest. What Mail Acton does is it allows you to set keystrokes that trigger rules. And those rules can be anything you want. Think about the rules that you have when things come into the inbox and what you can do with them, and those same rules now can be triggered by a keystroke. So you can be on a message and you can trigger a a, a filing or a move to. Uh, with a keystroke and it will just automatically put it where you want it to put it. So depending on how many mailboxes you have that you file things to, this might be an even better way because you don't have to leave the, uh, the, the keyboard to go back to the mouse and you can have, uh, you know, I use control and all kinds of different things to file mail and it works really, really well with, uh, with mail Acton. on. So that's my thought on that. John, do you have any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, my thought is that the mail UI deserves a fish shake. Well, yeah. Because what you could do is you could go to the message menu. So he's holding down control and clicking on an email. Right. However, you could go to the message menu, and I just verified this, and the move to choice is still in that menu, but it's not in the contextual menu. Well, no, he says he
1: gets it in the, he said he gets it in the contextual menu. He just can't get the what what's happening is it's predicting the wrong mailbox to move to is his problem.
0: Right? Like but I I I don't I don't see the choice move to again in the contextual menu because probably you haven't say. used it yet. No, I just I just used it like a, mo- a minute ago. Oh, And okay. it has huh. move to, copy to, archive and grayed out move to predicted mailbox but there is no, there is no What I'm saying mailbox, is that yeah. what I'm saying is the message menu contains the choice that should be in that other menu. Cause I, I seem to recall bo- it being in both places. And I think that's his point is that it's not anymore. It's like, what's, and what's this other, no, thing no, no,
1: no, no. His point is that move to the last mailbox you used is now replaced by move to predicted mailbox. And it's not predicting correctly. He hmm. says it's being too right. smart. Yeah. I, I, I really think that the, um, that the mail act on is the way to go. It, it's really quite nice. Because you, then you don't have to worry about predictions. You just assign keystrokes to the mailboxes that you want to use. And
0: it's good stuff. I don't know. That's, mm-hmm. that's my yeah, feeling on it. Because I keep seeing these inconsistencies where it's like, oh, well, if you click on this menu here, then you get this choice. But if you click in another menu, you get a different choice. And it's like, why don't I get the same choices? Why don't and, I get the same choices? Knows. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm seeing that happening even here is that it's... Yeah. Maybe it's always been that way and I just got dealt with it. You just dealt, you just dealt with it another way. Yeah.
1: And that's kind of, I guess that's the advice we're giving is, is deal with it a different way. (laughs) Move move on from, uh, from that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I, I was going to save this for uh, the kind of the tip section of the show. I am not a huge fan of third party email clients, largely because uh, mail works for me. Because it's extensible like this. Right. And I've been burned by third party email clients in the past because it's really hard to compete with uh, a built in piece of software. Right. Mail is built into OS 10. It's built into iOS. uh, And so it's difficult for a third party to to effectively compete. And usually their offerings uh, don't compete. Recently, uh, Reattle, I think is how we we say the name of the company, came out with Spark email. Now, it's free, so that might also make you scratch your head about, oh, how long is this going to last, Dave? And you know what? Dave doesn't know the answer to that. But what Dave does know is that Spark on both iOS and on the Mac is an amazingly full-featured version 1.0 email client. Uh, I am truly blown away with how well this works, it's got multiple signatures like the, the what we use SigPro for the the plugin called SigPro John. It's mm-hmm. got that built in so that you can assign signatures to different email addresses, even if those addresses are aliases. Um, it syncs its settings across iCloud, so you can run Spark on both your Mac and iOS, and it just you know you've got all the same settings and the same stuff everywhere you want. It really it, it they've done an uh, an amazing job. It's obviously built by people that have had to deal with very busy and and crazy inboxes and uh, and they're doing a good job with it. They're also doing some kind of interesting things in their smart mailbox uh, functionality where it's trying to surface intelligently surface things that are like sent to you versus newsletters versus like receipts. And it's it's actually it's pretty cool. I like I said, I, you rarely hear me talk about third-party email clients on the show because they just don't tip the scales enough to make me even think about moving to them and And there are a couple things, nitpicky things for me personally, about Spark that have kept me from moving to it uh, full time, but it's like really close I, For a 1.0, it blows me away. so I just wanted to I wanted to throw that out there. Um, it is It is impressive, so. So there you go. That's my uh, that's my pitch, John. I don't know. It's worth checking out. It's free, right? You know. So uh, mostly harmless, other than your time, which which is a which is arguably worth more than than
0: m- most money. So
1: moving on yeah. to
0: Joe. All right, did you did you have something about about that, John? Are we ready well, I'm wondering if Joe? I still had it on my machine. Um, What's that? They do have on iOS. I should look at Outlook again. I think you have to pay for it if you want it on, on uh, the desktop. But if you want it on iOS, I, I don't know if they stopped that. But it, no, last no, no. I they looked, it was it very iOS. close. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's free. And that's yeah, one it's I free, free on iOS. That's right. Okay. Yeah. No, that's all, that's all yeah. I got.
1: Okay, cool. All right. Moving back to our questions here and, uh, and going to Joe, which I think I can find here somewhere. What did I do here? There it is. Sorry. Joe asks, if I put an SSD in my customer's iMac, replacing the original mechanical drive, which has four gigs of RAM, is that sufficient in your opinion to run El Capitan? The customer does plain vanilla stuff with the computer, no high power programs. Would there be much of an advantage to having slash installing eight gigs versus four? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think with El Capitan and, and Sierra, if that iMac will run it. And I, you didn't say which which model iMac it was, so it's hard to say. But um, I, I think there's a, a massive difference these days between four gigs and eight gigs of RAM in, uh, in the Mac, or at least in terms of what the operating system itself requires. Yes. And my guess is that you can probably do that eight gig upgrade for, you know, 50 bucks or less. Um, it's certainly a hundred bucks or less, but probably even 50 or less. So, yeah, I I would do it. Uh, John, what do you think?
0: As far as the memory? Mm. Yeah. Have you
1: experienced El Capitan or Sierra with only four
0: gigs of RAM or no? You know, I believe I ran it inside of a VM once and it was, it was usable. I think yeah. I gave it four or eight. I'm not sure. Okay. I didn't give it a lot. No, I think I may have given it four. Yeah. I think I still, I think I still have it. The VM, but, um, the only thing I'd like to mention is that, uh, Apple's recommendation is two, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: yeah. I'd go eight if I were you, I, I would, uh, yeah, I wouldn't go less than eight. And it, it, like I said, it's probably not going to cost you very much or your client very much to do that. And you can kind of do it all at once. It's pretty easy to put RAM on an iMac, as, as, as you know. All right. Moving on to Paul. Uh, and Paul asks, a uh, quick question. Do you know of an external battery that will charge the new MacBook Pro 15 inch? I've got an Anchor Power Core Plus 20,100 milliamp hour USB C, which I can use to charge pretty much anything, but I don't believe it's got the oomph to charge the new 15 inch laptop. The battery charge icon on the laptop shows the battery is being charged when the external Anchor battery is plugged in, but if you look at the battery drop down info, it says the battery is not being charged. Will it damage my Mac slash. Is it possible to use this to trickle charge it? I seem to remember John saying it's OK to use a battery with more wattage than the Mac can handle, but not good if you were to use one that doesn't have enough power. Um, I, I'm actually curious to your thoughts on this. I would think that, that it's it's not going to hurt it. The Mac's not going to let itself get hurt. Uh, my guess is it's probably not enough to power and charge the thing simultaneously which is why you're getting that message that you are but if you were to uh, it'll probably stave off a uh, you know it'll 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 drain your battery the internal battery uh, less quickly with that external plugged in i believe based on what i've seen with other things but i haven't tested it with the new macbooks pro how about you john
0: Hmm. charging the macbook
1: because we're talking about a USB C, right? MacBook yeah, now. and that's.
0: Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a, a lot of hands-on. I do know there was a lot of chaos in the past about you know being very careful about selecting your USB C cables.
1: All right. Well, I no, I I mean I know with the with the MacBook, which was USB C, uh, we you, you definitely can use. In fact, that very battery can be used to to charge the thing so i think you're going to be fine doing that with the uh, macbooks pro as well but you might run into this thing where it doesn't have enough juice kind of like uh when you're trying to charge an ipad with a you know a a, a one amp charger it it can't charge it and power it simultaneously so you'll get the little not charging uh indicator in the in the upper right i think that's what you're seeing here and it and the fact that you're seeing that in the battery drop down tells me that the mac is being intelligent about it so
0: i think you're doing all right paul actually one thing i think you could look at to, to get a bit more information here i do believe that if you go to the system report or system information and you look in the power section i think it gives you some Information about the capabilities of whatever it's talking to, yeah, I look at it here, you know, charge remaining, but it also shows you know the voltage, the current, you know so some other things there, so you may want to take a peek there when you're when you're um trying this just to see what information you can get out of the um mm. of the device because it usually gives you pretty detailed uh, you know things as far as current and voltage and and things like that, yep, uh, in the system information yep that's a I did have, yeah. There, there was something new that I got that I should tell you about because uh, actually the setup uh, wouldn't work due to a power issue. What was that, John? Oh, I, got, I got this thing from uh, Santa, I guess. I don't know. Is, is it time to talk about this? I don't know. What do you want to talk about, John? Talk to us. <laughs> well, dot. Uh, that thing Where's
1: yes the, uh, okay you got an alexa dot we sent you one as a as a kind of a tmo thank you gift
0: yes okay so the cool things about it so number one we'll kind of delve early into cool stuff found if that's okay are we okay yeah, i was
1: gonna save this for the gift guide section if you had looked at the agenda you would have seen that but that's okay yeah, i know he,
0: we're here now go it's fine. well for here now um so when I received it initially, I'm trying to recall, I do believe it has a little power brick mm-hmm. that goes to a USB cable. That's correct. To power it. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't, I don't really need that. Why don't I just plug it into some other USB? And the device, the lights started to come on, started to do something. And then all of a sudden, bleh. Uh,
1: <laughs> so, you and I'm like, so you tried using
0: it without the included power brick? Is that right? <clears throat> Yeah, and whatever I plugged it into, I think it was that power strip I have, which I think it has one amp or something like that. I think what happened is that it's, you know, it had enough oomph to get it going part of the way. Yeah, but then all the lights went out, and I'm like, oh, that, that doesn't look right. That's not. It so says, yeah. it says I'm supposed to see a blue ring eventually when it's it's ready to deal with me.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: Yeah, and and I I, I said it's totally due to my initially not using a, a power source with enough current. To make right the happy. That, or that, power that same would make thing. sense yeah 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 Fast times current equals power right yeah. yeah
1: yeah yeah well those power you're talking about that weird power strip you have in uh in your like tv room slash the guest room that i sleep in is that right yeah, it's one of the uh,
0: that thing doesn't actually ones.
1: that thing doesn't actually spit out power on its USB ports. Those those things are awful. If I plug my phone into those at night, like if, no. he's got a power strip, right? I don't know what brand it is, but whatever it is, don't buy it. Um, and it's got two no, USB right. ports on it. If I plug my phone, it's just like the, you know, the lightning cable into that thing my phone will not lose charge overnight, but it will not gain much, maybe like 10%, but I always wake up with like dead phone when I'm at your house or not dead, but not charged. The good news is I'm always like, I wake up and then, you know, within an hour or two, I get in my car and drive, drive home typically is the the pattern. So I just charge it in the car, but yeah, that thing's weird. That thing it doesn't provide good power. Yeah. 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 Yes. Very interesting. Um, All right, let's get back to Bob. We'll, we'll talk more about the dot in the uh, the gift guide section here. Okay. So Bob asks, because it matters to him and it matters to us too. He says, I have a transporter device and I recently heard it would no longer be supported. Should I be thinking about an alternative such as a NAS or would a software solution allow me to retain the transporter? If I replace the transporter with a NAS, such as such as a Synology product can I remotely access files without having those files mirrored on my MacBook Pro like Dropbox or even the transporter? It's sad to see this happening to the transporter. It's been a great personal cloud solution for me. However, maybe it is the kick in the pants I need to explore the brave new world of NAS. So, yeah, the transporter was was sort of is, uh, depending on whether you have one or not, uh, is a, is a basically the only product that i know of but maybe somebody can help with this unique feature of allowing local finder access to these files that aren't stored locally so the transporter allows you to do either a dropbox style sync where it's truly just syncing the data between your your mac and the the host device the transporter or you can have it not sync it but give you across the network access to it in a way that sort of works across uh firewalls and and from outside the network and all of that stuff i mean you have to be authenticated obviously for that to work but it but it does work and and it's a unique feature that that i haven't seen in any other uh solution like this uh, you know and i've got different nas drives here even the one from Drupal, which was you know sort of connected to transporter but but now detached from transporter, the teams were sort of the same people at different times, I guess is the right way to to say that succinctly. And, and Drobos like even the five N, which is their network attached unit has some syncing features, but not this from across the internet, you know, ease of, of use thing. You can certainly with say a a Synology uh, and and the Drobo too, of course, uh, and basically any NAS you can mount a, share from those locally across the network without having to sync the data. And I do that all the time. I have I mean, I've got, you know, terabytes of of movies on uh, on my uh, NAS that I can access from any computer in the house, but I don't have to sync them. That works fine. But in terms of from across the Internet, not so much. Um, I haven't seen anything that does that. But, and maybe I'm just missing something, as we've said many times, even with the Synology stuff, you know, there's so much to it that maybe I just haven't peeled back enough of the layers of the onion to find that. But I don't think that's there. Uh, I've heard people talking about Lima at meetlima.com, and we'll put that in the show notes for sure. But, um, but that's the, uh, that's sort of a transporter like replacement thing where you, you have to bring your own hard drive to it, but. It It is this sort of um, this sort of concept. I haven't I haven't messed with the Lima, so I can't speak to that. But it's in terms of a transporter replacement where it's sort of single purpose personal cloud. That's the uh, that's the one. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Have uh, have you folks or John, have you found anything that that does this sort of, you know, f- mounting a file share without actually mounting a file share thing like the transporter does slash did?
0: I'm trying to identify. Hmm, I'm not sure. I never really took advantage of that mode because I know it had like four different modes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, so you want it? No, huh? I mean, and as you can, so you want you want them stored on a device that you control, but you'd like to access the data remotely as well. Is that? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's the it the way the transporter, the
1: effective result was locally similar to just mounting a share, right, where you could access this data that was only on the transporter and not also synced to your Mac. But what was unique about the transporter is you could also do that from across the Internet without having to think about setting up like a vpn or anything like that it was just all inside your transporter folder you had the um i forget what it's called because i don't think i have the transporter stuff installed here no um but it was it was like you had your transporter folder and then i think you had what was called the transporter library and the library was just the stuff on the on the device but you could get there so, yeah, I don't know of anything. Somebody in the, in the chat room is suggesting expand drive, which we've talked about a few times, uh, expand that might be able to do this. So we will, uh, we will put that, we'll put that on the, uh, uh, in the show notes as well, because, cause that's what we do. But, uh, but otherwise, no, I don't know. So if you folks do, please do let us know. And we'll move on to uh, to Craig's question here. Craig asks, he says, I have a Synology DS412 at home with four three terabyte Western digital drives that are now four years old. I've never had any issues with the drives and the regular smart testing that I do is always fine. But the mere fact that the drives are four years old is making me a bit nervous that sooner or later something will go badly wrong. I was thinking about replacing the drives and also getting larger ones to start giving me extra storage, but replacing four drives at once with four, four terabyte red drives would be a big hit. Financially, I've been thinking about planning to change out one drive every few months as a way of changing over and spreading the cost out a bit and was wondering what your thoughts are on preemptive drive replacements over just waiting until things go pear-shaped to do the replacement. So, um, mm yeah, you, the, the first thing to talk about is that the Synology will save you if one drive dies. Right. Uh, and I think you can actually set it up to save you if two drives will die. Um, don't but, but mm-hmm. confirm that. Right. Is that right, John? Okay. Uh, and in all, cause I've been down this path, uh, I've gotten, you know, a bunch of discs all at once. And then I've had all of them eventually fail. They don't all in my experience fail at exactly the same time, uh, so, starting this process when you're having no trouble with any of them is, a, is certainly on the overcautious side of the spectrum. Now, it, it, you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with being overcautious, but it it might mean that you replace these drives before you need to, and therefore wind up spending extra money. Because of course, as soon as you replace one, you're starting the clock on the new drive that you've put in, right? And if you can delay starting that clock, that's sort of the 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 gamble that you're that you're deciding between here. Uh, If it were me, I would wait until I start seeing trouble with the first drive. And at that moment, I would replace that drive immediately. I wouldn't try to mess around with it. And at that point, I would start my clock on these, you know, okay, I did this one now. Uh, I know that I can afford easily to do this every few months, like you said, Craig. So, all right, now I know that three months from now I'm going to replace the next one. And then three months from then I'll replace the next one. And you're probably going to be okay with that sort of a cycle. And then at least at that point, you're not starting the cycle before you uh, necessarily need to, because you might get, you know, you've had four years out of these drives. You might get eight years out of them. You might also get four years in a day. Right, There's there's no real way to know other than waiting and finding out. And thankfully, the Synology will save you. Um, but that, that's my advice. What do you think, John?
0: What Synology does now, I don't think they did this with earlier versions of DSM, but what they do have, which is cool because it does everything, um, but they do have a control panel. And at least in, in the last uh, few recent setups that I've done, so you go to the control panels and it's called task scheduler. So one that they recommend is to run a smart test and uh, they give you a suggested frequency, uh, you know, maybe a basic one. Uh, and it reads the parameters and just if any of them look out of, you know, there's a a quick one and a not so quick one. Right. Um, that's what I, because that's your only option to look at the smart stuff uh, on a NAS drive. Um, right. The Synology I've also found, uh, there, there's another place I don't recall. I think it's somewhere in the drive setup, you, you can define how many bad blocks there are on a drive before it starts getting upset about it and I think, and, and from what I saw in a recent setup that I did, the number was pretty high it was like 50 or something, which, you know, I mean there's yeah. a gazillion blocks, so, you know, maybe 50 is a good threshold, is that, you know, you because sectors will fail and get remapped and you won't know that it happened Right, right um, It's when one takes a big hit and they can't figure out what to do with it, then you you hear about it and i think by default it does that i remember it said whoa drive one said io error man it's like okay and <laughs> and i exchanged it but the thing is that happened so long ago so i would i would i would not recommend proactive replacement i have one drive dave i still have a 1 terabyte hitachi from my old g5 dude the drive must be 10 years old it's yeah. fine yeah <laughs> In the Drobo and the Drobo, uh, you know the Drobo a bit more aggressive about uh, marking say, drives bad. The Drobo, if if the Drobo thinks it's good, it's good. <laughs> the,
1: yeah, the Drobo is aggressive about that, not necessarily in a bad way. They, you know, the, it, you're relying. The assumption is you're relying on that unit to protect your data. So when it sees anything, it's going to say, "Nope, you got to replace this man." Yeah. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, okay. Let's go to we've got a couple questions about people migrating from the dark side. So let's, <gasps> let's dig in there. Yeah. But I think it's it's all good. I think we can we can do this. John asked, not you. Listener, John. Asks, I'm about to switch back to the Mac from nine months of torture in Windows 10. My main concern in switching back is how do I get my iTunes library and media files in uh, on over to the Mac? As well as my iPhone. I remember having to reset my iPhone the last time I switched computers. Is there a way of avoiding this? I have an iPhone 6S Plus and a current MacBook Air. So uh, the migration of your data should go pretty smoothly if you follow Apple's instructions. And they actually have a knowledge base article on this, which is helpful. Uh, just copy the entire iTunes folder from the Windows machine to your Mac, replacing the kind of default iTunes folder that would, that would be on your Mac with a fresh install of, of OS ten or even an existing one. Um, then you then go and sync your phone to this. It will ask to, to kind of jump to this one, but I believe you're going to be able to do it without having to reset your phone. Um, I, I, I think it's going to see the library and sort of match things up and, and then you should be okay. But, but, the trick really is to just copy that iTunes folder over migration assistant uh, would do it too. If you want to go through that, but I really feel like there's no reason to to go through that. If, if the iTunes folder is the only thing that you're interested in bringing over. So that's my advice, John, what do you think? I'm with you. Okay.
0: This is a, a one of the things that's amazingly straightforward and simple yeah. and it does the exact right thing. Yeah. And then just, just drag the whole folder over. That's the, when I've migrated my iTunes. Um, yeah. That's what I've done. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you're right. It's,
1: <laughs> it's one of the nicest things to do. Cause you, you literally just drag it over and that's it. And then there's nothing, nothing left to talk about.
0: Yeah. Good. And the other thing I do is that I still think they maintain this is that, you know, you get to a certain point in that folder. And the, what I've done also is drag that entire folder over to my Synology and, make it a DLNA source for other devices in the house. And it just kind of figures it out. It's like, Oh, well that's the artist because they organize it in a fashion that makes sense. And well, it's also reading the ID three tags from the, from the individual files. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's not a bad tip is uh, you certainly can set it up where you store your iTunes library remotely. You know on a on a network drive of of some sort, like a synology or any kind of network drive, and that can work uh, as long as the drive is mounted and We've talked about auto mounting of network drives in Sierra not being an auto thing anymore but uh even better I think is to have a local iTunes library and then I use carbon copy cloner, and I only have it do it once a week because i I don't change my iTunes library that often, but uh I sync my or clone my iTunes library from my uh, Mac to a folder on my disk station. And then I let my everything kind of point at that folder, audio station, DLNA, my Sonos can see it there.
0: Everything is just sort of available and, and ready to go. So um, I should do that. Though. I don't update my music very frequently, right? It's mostly old stuff that I've, I've ripped or acquired.
1: Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I set it to once a week. And that that way I just don't have to think about it, but even once a month would probably be enough in a, in sort of the general sense of things. So cool. All right. Uh, That's that one. Hopefully that goes easily for you, John. And then listener Dave has a question where he says, I've been going through a transformation and have been using a Microsoft surface pro four, which I love and recently dumped my iPhone for a sweet new Google Pixel. My issues, as I and I expected to deal with this, are email and calendar slash contacts. I'm attempting to use Outlook on my Pixel as well as trying to use it on my MacBook Pro in lieu of mail app, assuming that it might be a little simpler to sync contacts, calendars, and emails. First, I've been searching high and low for a solid way to import and sync contacts and calendars and haven't found much that I can get to work yet. My wife and I share a couple of Apple calendars and she's still all Mac OS and iOS. I'd like to try and stick with outlook, but still have Apple calendars to talk to it. Possible. Is that possible? He says, and also this just started happening. I've noticed a few emails will show up in my inbox in both outlook and mail app. I just forget about them for a little while. Then I go back and look and they're gone after some digging. I found them in my iCloud junk folder. I think it may be happening with my Gmail account as well. I drag them to my inbox, and in a few minutes, it happens again on its own. I also see a ton of non-junk emails from a year to four years ago that have been filtered into iCloud junk. I don't get it. I just closed Outlook on the Mac, and it seems like the emails were jumping over to junk are staying put. Uh, I'll open it up again in a few minutes and see if the problem recreates itself. I knew I'd have some issues switching from iCloud to Android. But this is just weird. It's obviously some kind of junk filtering that happens with Outlook that isn't happening with Mail. Dave, this is what happens when you give into the allure of the dark side, man. So, um, but now that we've chided you uh, and gotten that out of the way, for the getting the Apple calendars to, to talk to Outlook, the easiest way would be if there's an option to connect to iCloud and Outlook. But if you're not seeing that on whatever platform you use. There should hopefully be a way to generically connect a Caldav server. Uh, Caldav is the type of server that iCloud runs, but it's, but it, and Apple developed it. Uh, A guy named Red Dutta actually led the team at Apple to do that, although he's now retired. And, uh, but it is an open standard and other things support it. Even uh, Google supports it with their calendars, right? Um, The trick is figuring out what Caldav server your calendars are on and the trick sort of the trick to the trick is that there is no trick everybody you might have a different server but everybody can connect to a server called p01-caldav.icloud.com technically you might be on p15-caldav.icloud.com but if you connect to p01 you will see your calendars so add an i add a caldav server plug that in. We'll put a link. We'll, we'll put that text in the show notes so you don't have to write it down. And, uh, and then, and then you should be in, in good shape. You should be able to get um, outlook or anything you want to connect to your iCloud calendar. If you use two factor authentication, you will have to set up an app specific password for this. Cause it's not going to do the, the like OAuth style thing uh, for you. So you just go in and create an app specific password and you're good to go. Um, similarly for contacts, card dev is the protocol. And yep, you guessed it. P zero one dash contacts.icloud.com is the server name. I've seen people say that you can also use just contacts.icloud.com as the card dev server. Uh, Your mileage may vary. So that's the, that's the tricks is just treat them like industry standard server. This industry standard servers that they are, and you're fine. And regarding your junk mail, I agree. I think outlook is doing it. If you can turn off Outlook's junk mail filtering, I would start there. Um, John, you have any thoughts on any
0: of any or all of this? <clears throat> you don't realize the power of the dark side, David. <laughs> <clears throat> I know a few thoughts on this. So one, uh, yeah, you're. To, there's always a standard that you know these things are going to be based on. Probably the best place to find it if you go to, um, you know, system preferences, internet account. You're gonna see on the right a list of different services. Well, if you scroll that list down, so it starts off with ones they want to promote, like uh iCloud and Exchange right. and Google and all that. But then you get to the generic stuff if you keep going down. So you can do just a mail account and messages account, CalDav, CardDAV, all those standards. And yeah, you may have to get the values, you know, talk to an administrator or, you know, find a help article saying, Yeah, here's the pattern. Like, you know, you we all know the the one for uh iCloud because you, know, you can see it, or you used to be able to see it. You used it to be able to in see In the client it. program. You don't anymore, that's the thing. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Another thing I want to suggest when you start looking to migrate, uh, sharing all your data, there's almost always in all of the, the programs for the whatever platform you're on, there should be some sort of export option. Just, just to reiterate our advice that you should always have a backup is that <laughs> whenever you're starting to move from one place to the other, it's yeah. nice to have a copy of that data in case you screw everything up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah.
1: You're right. It goes without saying, but we'll say it. We should say it anyway. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think uh, I had one migration experience where I thought I had migrated the data to the new place, and so I deleted it all from the old place, and then I found out I didn't. That's bad, right. man. And that's then that's bad. where Time Machine or a backup came in. Uh, right, right. Handy. So um, cool. All
1: right. Uh, one last question, and then uh, then we'll kind of change gears a little bit, and uh, this might tease a little bit of what we're going to talk about with the with the router stuff. Uh, Patrick asks, he said, "I bought a Netgear AC nineteen hundred router slash cable modem to replace what I had previously. The AC nineteen hundred is a twenty four by eight uh, cable modem, meaning it has twenty four downstream channels capable of being bonded and eight upstream." Uh, I'm already getting speeds of 125 megabits per second down and 26 for my megabit, 26 megabits per second up on my wired MacBook Pro. Uh, I'm not sure if I should actually use this or if I should re- return it and get a Doxys 3.1 modem. So and we get questions from you folks about Doxys 3.1 quite a bit right now because they're out there and Doxys 3.1 is so doxys is the standard by which cable modems talk to cable providers and doxys three added the ability to bond lots of channels together in a great way that 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 opened up the speeds that we could get in our homes and comcast right now in my experience at least here will bond 20 channels down and three up uh, if you have it uh, depending on on what your service is, but uh, but it tends to work uh, very well. Doxis 3.0, and we all either have or should have Doxis 3.0 modems because otherwise you're probably not getting the speeds that you deserve uh, or that you pay for. However, Doxis 3.1 changes things dramatically. It it uses a different signaling method uh, so that it it can send more data over those same channels. Uh, I think it's a different QAM signaling, a different quam. If you want to dig into that, but um, it requires a a change on the head end. And DOCSIS 3.1 is not compatible with DOCSIS 3.0. But all DOCSIS 3.1 modems will, uh, at least the ones that we know about, will fall back to DOCSIS 3.0 if your head end does not support DOCSIS 3.1. There are very few places in the U.S. right now, uh, and I think worldwide. That, all, that currently support DOCSIS 3.1. Comcast, I know, is doing some tests and it allows you to get up to gigabit or, or more speeds out of your internet connection over, over cable lines. But these DOCSIS 3.1 modems are super expensive and really hard to get right now. Most of the time, people are getting them from Comcast, at least here in the US, when, uh, when they are you know testing this, this gigabit service. I think given the cost, Delta between Doxys 3.1 and 3.0 modems right now, it would actually be cheaper to buy a new Doxis 3.0 modem today. And then maybe a year from now when it's time for you to get DOXUS 3.1, but probably even that is too soon. It probably would be a year and a half, maybe even two years. Uh, buy a new Doxis 3.1 modem. Then I think buying those two modems in that time frame would be cheaper than buying a dox's 3.1 modem today so my advice stick with the 3.0 did i get there fast enough john
0: if i heard you correctly the 3.1 won't work it's not backwards compatible no no no.
1: 3.1 the standard is not backwards compatible with 3.0 but the 3.0 modems or the 3.1 modems all are and will be backwards compatible Okay, so, he could so you could
0: plug a 3.1 in, but you may only get 3.0 performance. performance. That's right, yeah. Okay, I, so I, your cable I, provider has to be ready for it. Correct,
1: but, but there's, nothing, there's nothing inherently wrong with being ready for them to be ready, except that I think you're going to spend way too much today to do that without getting any benefit out of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my thoughts. Yeah, While you're at it, upgrade your internal network to 10 gig, right? We were talking about that. Um.
1: <laughs> yeah you want to upgrade your uh, your internal network to 10 gig John <laughs> do I you have to... you
0: have some some 10 gig stuff or no 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 why not I've seen a few of them yeah uh, nobody's given me one yet well I've seen a couple of NAS uh, where did I see one show I went to QNAP has one okay I think had uh, 10 gig ports I think multiple 10 gig ports because some people need that sort of thing yeah 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 of course yeah of course. If you got an array with Tens or maybe hundred drives. Yep, <laughs> they make some huge. I'm with you. All
1: right. How about if uh, How about if we talk about our sponsors and then we'll go into some of our tips and and take this this show the rest of the way. How's that sound? Okay. All right. This week I am happy to bring back Harry's at Harrys dot com where coupon code MGG. Gets you five bucks off at checkout. Harry's makes some of the best razors I've ever used in my life. And now everyone in my family agrees because we're all using them. They're addictive because not only are they so good, you get this shave that is so close, the razors last for us a really long time, Uh, really easy to use, and so inexpensive. It's one of those things where... The price and the product just don't match. To be perfectly honest, you get this amazing razor. Literally the best razors I or anyone in my family have used in our lives. And you're paying like two bucks a blade. But it gets even better than that. Because this holiday, Harry's has ready to gift shave sets, at all different price points starting at just 15 bucks they all come with a razor handle of your choice shaving cream replacement blades and a travel cover and that travel cover is actually pretty awesome and their Winston set includes an engravable chrome handle if you want to add like a personal touch and as i said we've partnered with Harry's here 5 bucks off when you use coupon code mgg at checkout that means that these gift sets start for you at just 10 bucks. So you gotta check this out. Visit Harry's.com, use coupon code MGG at checkout. Save five bucks off the best razors I've ever used. And I think they're going to be the best razors you or whomever you gift them to ever uses too. Our thanks to Harry's for sponsoring this episode. Our second sponsor for today is Drobo at drobo where you can use coupon code MGG two zero for 20% or more off of some of the coolest products that I've ever seen. Okay. So here's what drobo does. They make a family of safe, expandable, simple to use storage arrays. And we don't say RAID when we talk about Drobo because they use what they call Beyond RAID. They make it super easy. If you have a bunch of drives, you just put them in. You don't have to worry about them all being the same size when you want to replace one, either because it goes bad and Drobo protects you when a drive goes bad. You can set it to either protect you against one or two drives. Either way, when a drive goes bad, you take it out, you put a different one in, if the different one is larger than the one that, uh, that it replaced, which it probably would be down the road, you're going to have a larger drive to put in there. It'll take advantage of as much of that extra storage space as it possibly can right away. You don't have to wait until all your drives are larger like you would in a normal RAID array. And then you'd have to like re-go through everything. You don't have to think about any of that. Drobo just does it for you. Very cool stuff. They've got direct attached. They've got network attached units. Uh, the Drobo product family has devices with five, eight, or even 12 drive bays that you can save on. Because through December 31st, coupon code MGG20, that's MGG20, saves you 20% or more. That's somewhere between 100 bucks or 800 bucks off the purchase of a Drobo 5D or Drobo 5DT, the Thunderbolt and USB 3 models, the 5N, which is the network-attached system, or anything larger than those, the 8-bay or 12-bay network systems. doesn't matter. MGG20 gets you 20% off at drobostore.com. Check this out. Fun stuff, good stuff, easy to use. Our thanks to Drobo for sponsoring this episode. Our third sponsor for today is smile at smilesoftware.com slash geek. And that's where you can go to find out about all of the great stuff that smile does, including things that you can give as a gift this holiday season. Give the gift of smile. Now that might be PDF pen for iPad and iPhone or PDF scan. Plus I, a lot of my theater friends, uh, See me using my iPad to read scores that they know I was given as a paper score. PDF scan plus. I can't tell you how many people that I have already gifted PDF scan plus to over the years because it's this awesome app that makes scanning pages and books really so simple because it auto detects the page. And when it catches the page in the frame, it takes the picture. All I have to do is hold my phone above the book, flip the page, wait till it catches it, move to the next page, wait till it catches it, flip the page. I'm not touching anything on my phone. And just the other day, I did this with a 111 page book, dealt with it. No problem. So that's one thing. PDF scan. Plus, what if you have a writer in your family? Like I do. I was sitting with my daughter yesterday, who is a 17 year old young woman. Really has designs on being a journalist. She's uh, one of the editors at her school newspaper publication, I should say, because they are online. She's starting a podcast, which is cool. And I showed her text expander. And she was like, whoa, that's amazing. So you can give the gift of text expander which is like giving the gift of time and that's probably one of the things i'm going to give to my daughter this holiday season a you, uh, year's subscription is available you can gift it to somebody awesome stuff you got to check this out go to smilesoftware.com/geek or thanks to smile for sponsoring this episode all right john uh, you know, it, I I said I had two things to mention, but, uh, but I will only mention one of them because I already mentioned spark email, but a cool app thing launched this week. It's called set app, John. And that is, it's like a, it it's an alternative app store, if you will. And a lot of people have tried this. This is from the folks at Macpaw who make clean my Mac. Um, but it's, it's not an app store. It's. Uh, an app subscription service. They they're calling it like, I don't know, Netflix or something. Have you checked this Netflix for apps? Have you checked this out? It's for the Mac set. App? Absolutely. Okay.
0: Oh yeah. No, a lot of us. Uh, yeah. A lot of people in the uh, uh, Mac tech journalist community, I think we're offered codes, including me. Yeah. Yeah. And they made okay. great progress. It's a, uh, yeah, I'm with you. It's a, it's a app store alternative subscription service.
1: And it's got, <laughs> so it's 10 bucks a month, right? Nine ninety nine, I guess. And, uh, and it's got some decent apps in there of course it has all the you know the the macpaw apps so you've got clean my mac and and gemini and i think uh hider is in there it's got to be right is hider theirs? i always get confused maybe it doesn't um but uh but it's also got things like iMazing, iStat menus um oh, what are some of the others i'm looking screens the the great kind of remote access client uh for the mac uh ulysses a great text editor and and a bunch of others too and they, you know, they track what apps you you launch so that they can pay the developers appropriately so that the right people that are, you know, whose apps are being used are being paid and all that stuff. But uh, but I've tested it and it it works. It's an interesting concept. So I just kind of wanted to uh, make everybody aware of it. It's at setapp.com and you can sign up for a beta invite. I think they... Um, I, I, I don't think it's an automatic thing, but I think we can get some beta invites to share with you folks if you're if you're interested. So if you have trouble getting in and you want to get in, find us um, feedback at MacGeekGab.com uh, or find us on Twitter at MacGeekGab and, and we'll uh, we'll see if we can't get MacPaw to cough up a couple of beta codes mm-hmm. if, if you folks can't get in.
0: Yeah, I think I heard you say feedback at com. I said feedback at MacGeekab.com, John. That's right. Yeah. Okay. But that's yeah. not the only email address you can write us. You could also write us, if you're a premium member, It you can send an email to premium at com.
1: That's true. And yeah. if you're a premium member, depending on how many codes we get, we will prioritize uh, giving those to you folks uh, first in the line. So... So, so you can learn about being a premium member at MacGeekab.com mm. as well.
0: Yeah. So set app, what I like about it is that it integrates seamlessly with the finder. It's yeah. just a folder full of apps and it looks like they're all there. The only way you find out that the, the, the first time you try to run it, it says, oh, this app is not downloaded. You want, want to download it and put it on your system and you say yes. And that's couldn't be easier. It's a, I'd say it's actually a little nicer than the app store. So, oh, I mean, it's, it's part of the finder because <laughs> it's just right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All
1: right, John. Let's let's do this uh, this router uh, follow up here because I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves and then wind up not doing it. Uh, so uh, many questions from you folks, and we're going to try and try and get through as many of them as we can. Joe is the the first one. He says I do a lot of streaming Wi-Fi audio on my iPhone with apps like TuneIn and MyTuner Pro. When using a Netgear AC-1900 cable modem, probably the one we just talked about, and the Netgear AC-1200 extender, streaming audio drops for about 30 seconds to one minute when the iPhone gets handed off from one to the other. Sometimes the stream never recovers. Uh, The Apple Airport Extreme uh, and extender seem to do a slightly better job with handoff, but uh, with the newer mesh Wi-Fi, are these problems with seamless Wi-Fi handoff solved? And the the answer is, yeah, that that's kind of one of the killer features of mesh because you're using single SSID and not only are your clients uh, involved in the decision process, but the 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 mesh, the, the, the routers and the extenders are all aware of each other. Whereas with, you know, the setup you're talking about with your Netgear thing, they don't know, like the extender and the router don't really talk to each other in a way that's helpful for this handoff process so yeah that that's one of the beauties of of the mesh is that it is uh the handoff as long as the clients support it and not every client does but your iphone definitely does uh can can really be kind of steered and there's that quick reauthentication and all that stuff so yeah it's it's absolutely the way to go for for that kind of thing any thoughts on this before i move on i'm going to try and go fast through this john but but if you've got something to to interject by all means please interject
0: one way to measure this is to get our uh our little friend here uh uh oh gosh Tabuki Tabuki is it Tabuki yeah, yeah. Tabuki yeah or no but the smaller one the uh, tools i believe
1: is that Oh it? oh yeah 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 yeah
0: oh, oh i want to no. see if i can find it before. yeah all Tabuki right. tools all right so Tabuki tools it has one purpose in life it tells you when you're switching from one wi-fi to another And i've actually been using this so i i had a bit of a disaster but now i'm currently up and running with the eero and uh and it is inter and, and you can use this it'll show you but it'll basically say yeah you, you just got switched from one to the other ah. so um i found that a very useful tool for determining how smart something is and uh huh and it has some other abilities which we'll talk about shortly which cool. are actually kind of scary <laughs>
1: All right, uh, listener Dan asks, uh, he said, um, I thought of getting Eero a few times, but I have a few cons- concerns before I spend the money. I live uh, in, in Long-, on Long Island in New York. Where I have FiOS internet and TV, and I currently use the Verizon modem and their Wi-Fi network. I also have two old Airport base stations running from the Verizon modem and creating their own Wi-Fi network with a simple username and password for my mother who lives upstairs. Uh, now that I hear Apple will no longer be making the Airport, uh, I'm curious: Can I plug the Eero into the Verizon modem, turn off Wi-Fi on the Verizon modem, and put the Eero in bridge mode so that the Eero creates the Wi-Fi network? But my Verizon modem still manages the uh, the the routing and all of that so that I still maintain my TV and all of that. Um, yes, uh, if, if you want to do this, absolutely. Eero uh, will work in bridge mode. Not every one of the mesh products will work in bridge mode, but the Eero will. Uh, and that means you're turning off the routing functionality of the Eero. So if there was anything that you liked about that, then you're not going to have it. Uh, but in terms of the mesh, all of that remains 100 percent intact. And yeah, you can put it in bridge mode and it, it works really, really well. In in fact, so uh, you can do that and you can do bridge mode with the Netgear Orbi, um, the I believe, and you can do it with the Amplify. Uh, the Google wifi, though, I haven't tested it yet. Uh, their FAQ says that uh, I've got one coming with the Google wifi. So we'll catch up on that. But the, the Google wifi says no bridge mode. Uh, the Luma doesn't yet support bridge mode. And I think that's, that's all of them. So yeah, you can use bridge mode on that. No problem. And that's what you're doing right now, right? John, you've got the Eros running in bridge mode.
0: Yeah, I've been analyzing multiple disasters on my network. And so I'm still running the TP link, the Archer Archer C9. I just turned off the radios. And like you said, I have the Eero plugged into it in bridge mode and, and it does exactly what it needs to. Yep. I think it even did complain when I didn't turn off the other radios. It's like, um, yeah, you can't name me the same as like something that I, I can already see. And I'm mm. like, oops, sorry about that. <laughs> really? Oh, I didn't realize the Eero was smart enough to to catch that.
1: Oh, that's smart. Huh. Very cool.
0: And I think, it, it yeah, there, there were various complaints from it in that it didn't like, yeah, but having, an, if you already have a radio with a certain name, you're going to have to gracefully move over. Or just not have the other radios running. Yeah, it was, right. it was pretty pretty good about That's
1: that. That's pretty good. Wow. All right. Uh, Ron asks, he says, uh, just a clarification, because I ordered my Eero. Uh, when I set up the Eero, uh, I Ethernet into the back of it from... He's, oh, he's asking a clarification on the best process to set up, because our advice was set them up first in... A, a double NAT scenario, so that you're you're not taking your existing router out of the mix until you've got the EROS set up and running. That way, you've always got internet access throughout the process, which the EROS require. So he says, when I set up the Eero, I Ethernet from it to the back of my Airport Extreme and proceed to set it up. I presume I'll need a new name for the network if I do it that way. And John, you just proved that that is true. Uh, once it's online, then I shut down everything and connect the Eero directly to the cable modem, and lastly set up the remote units or should i set up the remote units first um i have phone service so i wonder if keeping the same name on my wi-fi as the previous network would make everything easier yeah i I would do exactly what you said ron i would just set up the first eero uh make sure it's up and running hanging off of your existing router once that's good turn everything off the eero your existing router and your cable modem uh then power up the cable modem plug it directly into that eero make sure you're back online at that point, I would actually change the network name to what you had previously so that all your devices will just now naturally gravitate towards connecting to the Eero. And then in the inside the Eero app, you can add the other uh, what I'll call satellite Eero's to the uh, to the mesh and it'll all just it'll all just work. So, yep, that's that's how I would do it. I would do the same thing with the Luma as well, uh, because the Luma is similar to the Eero in that it requires cloud access so uh, I feel like, and this is my just like, I don't know if you want to call it a conspiracy theory, but uh, in I, I've worked hands on pretty extensively with both the Luma and the Eero. And now looking at what the Google Wi-Fi is, the hardware on those three, is like strikingly similar. I don't want to say it's exactly the same, but they all have the two Ethernet ports, their AC 1200 radios, uh, the They use Bluetooth. I think the Google does. I know the Lumen and the Euro do use Bluetooth to, uh, to do the setup so that it pairs with your phone and all that stuff. And uh, so I feel like the hardware is all being made um, in the same place, but that's just a, that's just a guess. Not that it's bad. It all works fine (laughs) hardware wise. So I don't have a problem with it. Just, you know,
0: I I almost feel guilty in that I I could satisfy a lot of my curiosity about what's in the Euro by cracking one open. Now, number one, it doesn't look very, it, there's no straightforward way to actually crack it open. Right. <laughs> and number two, I feel kind of bad because, you know I mean? They sent me a review unit and I, I don't want to destroy it, right. but I do.
1: Yeah. 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 Well, e- email them and ask them for a, uh, for a, a teardown spec. And maybe they'll, they'll send that to you in lieu of, of you cracking it open.
0: <laughs> you know, I'm, one, I, I'm sure somebody's already torn it up. That's I true. You I might be able to asks. find, I fix it. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. All right. Uh, listener Joe asks, Uh, he says, uh, I bought a Synology router to replace my Apple router. Um, and, and by the way, it looks like Synology has got a new router coming. There's been some reports on the net Mm. with, uh, yeah. So using similar software to the, the RT 1900 AC, but I think they, I think it's a 2600 radio. So, uh, yeah. So it's good to see Synology not just having a one-off in the router business. They they are a perfect company to make standalone routers, I think. Um, so if you only need, you know, if your place is small enough that just one is going to do it, like I said last week, I really like, or two weeks ago, I really like the Synology. Uh, <clears throat> I have bought a Synology router to replace my Apple router. My subnet will change from 10.x to 192.x. What steps should I take to clear out the 10.x numbers Before I hook up the new router, Um, honestly, as long as you haven't uh, manually set IP addresses on any device, my advice would be just I would set up the Synology router first, get that on on your network and then just go around and reboot everything. And um, especially if you've kept the Wi-Fi name and password the same, they're all just going to join and coming back up from a reboot, they should just uh, see it and 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 connect and get the new address and you should be fine but john I think, I think you you would also advise powering uh repowering any of your network switches too right
0: yeah i had something weird happen which my initial set up the experience and, and i'll take it back now uh i thought it was due to the eero doing something oh yeah too clever but it actually turned out I eventually uh, uh, isolated the problem to some weirdness with with my uh, supposedly smart switch here. And that, yeah, if, if you want to clear out, I mean, most devices duh, You pull the power and, and it forgets most things, or at least temporary things, and it should because you you don't want you know IP addresses from another subnet floating around in your equipment because then everything falls apart. It well, weird. it, it yeah. shouldn't. It shouldn't be a problem, but sometimes it is. Because if it, uh, even, even sometimes like with the Eero setup, it would be like, oh, I'm going to be smart and put myself on a 1.9. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. Don't, yeah, that's right. It did it, it did it. It created a separate, a private uh, subnet on my existing subnet with a different class. And I'm like, uh-oh, uh-oh. I, don't know, that's, I don't want that. No. I said, no, no, you're, you're going to bridge. Yeah. But um, yeah, that's good. But yeah, right. apparently right. my having that happen uh, confused my switch to the state where it was not even switching I don't know what was going on, man. Like every device that was wired to it could not could see the internet, but they couldn't see each other. Wow! And I eventually huh. isolated the problem. I'm like, you know what? Let me take a device that's plugged into the switch and plug it into my TP-Link instead. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all the shared things, all my file servers and everything, appeared like instantly. And I'm like, okay, the problem's the switch. So I went to the switch and said, let's pretend you just came out of the box, do a factory reset, and then everything came back to normal. And then, and then it was fine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm questioning what what did I miss about why you you have to change it. Mm. Uh he he may have just decided
1: he wanted to go with the default on the on the new one. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm
0: still a uh, 172 type of guy. I know. Yeah, and we love you for that, John. <laughs> and it's not a bad thing. Um, Everybody, stop saying that. Uh, sure. Uh,
1: I, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick out listener Joe just because. He said something and, and I kind of took it in a different direction, but he, he said to me, uh, I'm the only since I'm the only person in my house, QoS quality service does not affect me that much. So Apple's time capsule still jo- does the job. And I in, in Joe and I have had this conversation, so I don't want to uh, really single out Joe, but but he identified something that I've heard many people say, and it's simply not true. Um, there, there's, there's this myth that QOS really only matters when you have multiple people in the house. And I would even argue that QOS matters even if you don't have multiple devices on your network. And here's why. When, and what we're talking about is QOS on the the WAN port, so on the internet side of your connection, something to make sure that you are not maxing out either the downstream or even more importantly, the upstream of your internet connection Uh, because especially if you use a cable modem, what happens is the cable modem gets a profile from the, uh, from the head end, from your ISP that tells it how, what the maximum downstream and maximum upstream speed is. If you hit either one of those, especially on the upstream uh, what happens is you start sending data at the cable modem and it says, all right, you've hit whatever it is. Let's say it's 10 megabits per second. So you've hit 10 megabits. It has to put up a hard wall. It's not doing any traffic shaping or anything at that point. It just says, nope, uh, we will stop you. So that packet that just got here needs to go all the way to the back of the line. And uh, and sometimes it'll even drop the packet. But more often than not, it just really sends it to the back of the line. And then it comes back in and it just does. It's this brick wall uh, sort of limiter that happens. And it's fine because it limits you to the speed that you are paying for, at least that the profile says. The problem is that packet now that had to jump to the back of the line gets slowed down quite a bit and that can make things seem really slow, even though you've got all this speed technically available to you. So the idea behind QoS is that you've got something before the cable modem limiting that traffic, but instead of using this brick wall limiter, It's limiting it to just shy of where the cable modem would stop you because you never want to hit the cable modem's wall. So you set it to limit you to just shy of that. And now instead of doing it with a brick wall, it can do it in a a friendlier, more intelligent way saying, all right, let's prioritize this packet. Let's deprioritize that one. But let's deliver this nice little package to the cable modem that never hits the brick wall. And then you don't get this weird latency slowdown when you're just trying to say, say, not just check your email, but stream Netflix or do anything like that. You need to be able to get data in and out very efficiently. Even if you just have one device, having QoS can save you because here's the thing. Let's say you get home, right? And you, uh, your phone joins your Wi-Fi network. And because this is the way it's set up, Photo stream or iCloud photo library now starts barfing all your pictures up to iCloud because you're finally on Wi Fi. So you went out, you took a bunch of pictures, you get home, it's now barfing them all up. It's going to soak up your upstream. And that can slow down that very same device from being able to quickly browse the web because you can't even send a request out quickly to the website to get it to send you something back. So QoS really, really does matter. And now that we've all got kind of enough speed on our or most of us have enough speed on our downstream and upstream, you really want to uh, to do some of that packet shaping so that our traffic shaping, I should say, so that it's it's doing a nice thing. And that's that's what that's the, the benefit of QoS. So there's my there's my spiel on that. I know I went a little long on that one, but, you know, I wanted to make sure we got it out there.
0: Good. I agree with you. Like we saw the extenders try to solve the problem best they can, but they don't always based on our experience. There just wasn't, wasn't enough pipe to get what we wanted done. Done.
1: Well, that's, that's actually internal QOS right on your network. That's not, that's a, that's a whole different thing. That's, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, it, it matters. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, another similar thing, uh, that I can find here if I can find it. Um, Listener, he, I believe he calls himself Palm, says, A quick note. Uh, you are quite right that the Internet of Things is a security problem. So, my solution is a PFSense as a router uh, using an Alex board with three NICs. Port one is the WAN, port two is the LAN, and port three is for my Internet of Things. The way it's set up, the Internet of Things port only has access to the Internet and each other. No DNS, no DHCP. You have to set them up manually on that network. On the regular LAN port where all of my trusted devices are, my iPhone, my iPad, my laptop, I can open ports so that I can access things on the Internet of Things network, not the other way around. And this is a very interesting setup, a kind of a geeky network setup. And I've heard of people, again, wanting to segment off their Internet of Things devices. Um, the problem is most of your Internet of Things devices you're going to want to access from your computers. Right. You want things like your printers, your Synology or your Drobo NAS devices, uh, any HomeKit stuff, uh, all of those you want accessible locally. So uh, even your webcam, you probably want accessible locally, even your doorbell. Right. I mean, that, that's how these things work you you um some of a lot of them are cloud managed uh, but not all of them and sometimes even the cloud managed stuff you want to be able to talk to locally so uh, i i really think unless you want to get into a a headache scenario where you truly are actively managing each of these devices and how it works i think you have to keep your internet of things devices on the same network um that's my feeling john what do you think <sighs>
0: Pretty much. Yeah. They, yeah. they, they, need to do what they have to. I mean, it, you know, I was starting to look at, I mean, there, there is a, a concept of a DMZ, which is kind of this protected part of the network that protects the inside and the outside from each other. Um, I, I don't know if it'd be worth the time to try to architect something like that. To well, no, a DMZ
1: is the unprotected part, right? I mean, that's where you tell your router, any traffic that comes in, that's not meant for anyone specifically go direct it to this other computer. Mm. Right. So, that, I mean, that's what a DMZ is. So that if you it, a DMZ is a, a cheat around port forwarding, if you don't want to have to forward specific ports and figure out what those are, you say, I know that I want my Xbox to be able to get on the network and do all the multiplayer gaming. So I'm going to DMZ that thing and done. Or you could DMZ your your disk station. Right. So that you, I mean, that, this is a bad idea. I don't recommend this. really, really bad idea. But that's what DMZ is. Yeah, is it's it's like forward all the ports to that computer.
0: Well, you know, I guess a DMZ is kind of like a guest network. Huh?
1: Conceptually. Yeah, I'll think about it. I don't think so. DMZ is like is a is a a bulk port forward. That's that's what a DMZ is. Are you thinking of something different
0: and you're calling it a DMZ? Probably. You're, are you thinking of a separate VLAN? Maybe. That could be it. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm just I'm just trying to think of Network architecture options, but yeah, I wouldn't expect most people to be be going through that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, it's it's
1: kind of a it's kind of a, a mess, is what it is. Yeah. Uh, all right. What else do we have here? I, you know, I want to I want to throw an honorable mention in for a router called the Starry Station. It this is a standalone mm. router. Okay, you can check it out at Starry s t a r r y dot com. I didn't mention it uh, in the in the router show. It it kind of sits in a weird spot in terms of its uh, its features versus its price. It's not inexpensive. It's a it's two hundred ninety nine bucks, so three hundred dollars US for this thing. Now, it has monster radios in it. All the uh, the radios are four by four MIMO radios, so like monster radios. Uh, Eight hundred two point eleven AC full speed. Uh, it's only got two Ethernet ports, so one in, one out, kind of like the Eero, the Luma, but but it's not mesh. This is just a single standalone unit. And when I say standalone unit, I really mean it because, no, it. this is the only router that I've seen where you can set the entire thing up from the router. You don't need any device whatsoever. You can use one to manage it for sure. But. The router has a; it's a it's a weird design. It's like a little triangle, triangular kind of thing that just sits. It looks nice. It's got a touchscreen on it, yeah. and you can set it up. It, it, the touchscreen is enough so that you can type in a network name, a password, all the stuff that you'd want to do. And uh, it's almost like a four-inch touchscreen. I mean, it's not small, but it it's cool. And the range on this thing is outstanding. Uh, works It works really well. Again, it it's it kind of sits in a weird spot if you are a if you need coverage, but uh, but don't quite need mesh. Right. If your house is small enough where you don't quite need mesh, uh, this thing's super easy to set up, super easy to use. It's got some, you know, it's got actually very good parental controls and filters. It also shows it's got like a floating network map that shows the devices that are connected. And it'll tell you which devices but visually tell you which devices are weak in terms of signal and strong in terms of signal. You can tap on them and see what it is. So it's this very cool user interface. Again, I feel like the price kind of puts it in a weird spot because for 300 bucks, uh, you know, that's the price of of uh, of like Eero or or Google Wi-Fi. And uh, and that was the, the price of the but sorry, not Eero Luma or Google Wi-Fi Eero is 100 bucks more than that, although that was their price on a on the deal. So, it, it you know, I feel like at one ninety nine, the Starry station would be this like for a standalone router would be a very cool thing. But with a touchscreen in there, they probably can't make it one ninety nine, especially with those radios. So. 299 is it. It's interesting to look at. Um, so like I said, it sort of sits in a niche, but, um, but it's kind of cool. If you need tech support, you just tell it on the thing, call me. You put your phone number in and then your phone rings. So again, you can manage this thing fairly well without any other device, which is kind of cool. So yeah, I, wanted to, I just wanted to throw an honorable mention in because it's, a, it's an interesting product class. I'd like to see it at a lower price, but, uh, but you know, it's kind of cool. And, uh, Robert has, some. uh, we'll call it a cool stuff found, but, but he's got a few things that are great tools for managing your wireless network. And, uh, he says, uh, I thought I would pass along some tips on the tools to use, especially with the newer mesh networks. Geeks need some tools to measure wifi signals and help place the access points in the best locations. So I found the following tools very useful. Wi-Fi Explorer by Adrian Granados in the Mac app store really helpful to see both your own and your neighbor's signal strength because of iOS limitations. You can't have tools like this on an iPhone. So it's best to be on a MacBook to be able to work around, walk around your house while using it. Um, And, and yeah, Wi-Fi Explorer is one. I like, I stumbler too. uh, And I think there was one actually in set app too. It looked like there might've been one. Um, But uh, have you used this Wi-Fi Explorer, John?
0: I have not, but there's another one I'll mention that kind of crosses uh, uh, different categories. But NetSpot has both a Wi Fi scanner, but also lets you do a site survey, which actually I want to try with the Eero to see oh, what it looks like. Yeah. Because in the past, I've only done it with a single airport or a single. Right. Thing. Sometimes with an. No, I don't think I've ever done it with an extender. Hmm. So yeah, you, 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 you draw a map of your house or story I have to find the map that I drew long ago. Yep. And then walk around and it shows you the signal strength of all of the stuff it can see. Cool. So uh You can do a little bit of this on your iPhone with one app and that's the Airport
1: Utility app. Right. It, right? Well, you have to go into the into the Settings app, go to Airport Utility and turn on Wi-Fi scan mode. Then you'll get a new little box in the upper right corner of Airport Utility where you can do a Wi-Fi scan. It you're not going to be happy with it, but it, in a pinch it works. So um land scan pro is one that Robert mentioned in his, in his email here uh, is a, a mapping utility uh, as well. So that's another one to throw out there. And John, he also likes Fing, which I know you like too, so that you can scan the, Oh yeah. That not the, the, not the radios, but the devices on your local network. Then that does work for your iPhone and is a uh, more portable. So good stuff. And uh, he says somewhat related. If you're serious about your network, the DOMOTZ, D-O-M-O-T-Z, Network Management System, is awesome. He says it's only $2.99 a month, and you can get free agents that run on your NAS units, your Synology, your Netgear, your QMAP, or a Raspberry Pi. Uh, and he says it. Um, this is from the company that just bought the Fing app. The key difference is that it provides proactive alerts when issues or status changes are detected on your network because it's a cloud service. Uh, it will monitor your network from the outside so it can detect you if your ISP feed goes down and alert you for that too. the cloud services, remote access capabilities and proxy service back to your homeland. Um, you can create custom monitoring and all that stuff aimed at professional use. He says uh, it's still very affordable for advanced geeks, home users and worth checking out. So. Very cool. I hadn't heard of Domots before, John. So that's, that's one to, uh, to check out. Good. Yeah.
0: I wonder if it'd be appropriate to add some things here.
1: Well, if you're going to add them, go quick. Cause we're running out of time and I want to blaze through our gift guide. We're going to, we're going to each have two minutes on our gift guide. So, uh, so you know,
0: okay. Choose well, wisely, mention, but, but all right, i going to mention, yet. we're not there. I'm, I'm going to mention a general class of tools here. So there's Go two ahead. of them. So one is actually one that I found on my machine. That's very dated. That's very old, but it shows the data in a different way. So these are all Bonjour browsers. So there's one called Bonjour browser and it's from tildasoft.com And it's pretty much the only title that they have on the page. It's very minimal, but it's old software, but it still works. And what it does is it shows all of the devices, but rather than sorting by device, it sort of sorts by service, which is kind of a unique view. So if you want to know, you know, what services are being offered instead, and then it lets you drill down to a specific machine. I find these tools very useful for diagnosing a lot of networks because it doesn't matter what, you know, it doesn't have to be a Mac or iOS device. Every, almost everything speaks bonjour in that they advertise their presence and their capabilities on a network. And having a scanner can help you determine if your network's not set up right and actually use that. Cool. So that's one. And then Flame is the other one. Flame is both uh, on iOS and uh, a desktop program
1: cool cool all right uh all right now now that we're done with that with this we'll, we'll, we'll still of course answer router questions uh, going forward i just wanted to kind of get that first wave out of the way now in terms of the gift guides john are you ready or should i go first
0: i don't have a heck of a lot but i have one right, i can add ahead. on to yours all right the one i want to add on here so uh i, I recently got sick of uh so, hey, if, there's a lot of free software out there, but you need something to manage it. It's called a package manager. And forever, I used one called Think, mainly because it had a GUI. Um, but then, Dave, you turned me on to something called Homebrew. The thing is, I wasn't too crazy about it because you have to do everything from the command line, like a caveman. <laughs> well, the thing is, there is a uh, GUI for it now. It's in beta, but it works fine as far as I can tell. Uh, and it's called K I don't know why. I don't know the significance here. Uh, Cake Brew, I believe, is where you want to go. To learn about this yes welcome to cake brew it's basically a GUI that interacts with homebrew and so i'm sold <laughs> all right i'm not sure that's a gift i'd give to someone right
1: i think it's free right but uh certainly cool stuff found that's good yeah yeah all right cool um i've got a few things so i'm gonna uh i will i will go as quickly as i can here and i will limit myself to two minutes the uh, the aforementioned Alexa dot at 50 bucks is and you can buy them in a pack and get them cheaper than that is really one of the fate. One of the my most favorite toys to to have and also to give to anyone. And and when I say anyone, I mean anyone like even the non tech savvy folks, even the non tech interested folks that I've seen work with this stuff, love the Alexa dot, even if it's just to set timers in your kitchen or ask a question or read the news, it's easy to set up. Um, it, you know, the dot gets you into the Alexa platform, the Echo platform uh, way cheaper than having to buy one hundred and fifty hundred eighty dollar, you know, full size Echo. Very cool stuff. Highly recommend it. Um, very much so. Along the same lines, Mono Price has these awesome for twenty five bucks awesome holiday lasers. I set them up uh, with my son Lucas yesterday uh, or actually two days ago. And uh, you just plant this thing in the ground with a stake. You aim it at your house or at the trees or whatever. And it's these like red and green. So certainly Christmas themed uh, it's this puts on this laser show, like on your house. So you, if you're a chicken of getting up on ladders like me, this is a way to get your house sort of decorated in lights without having to, uh, to, you know, risk life and limb to, to do so. So that's one of my other favorite things, John. And, uh, and then lastly, I'm going to include the earrings. Now these are a little more expensive. They're at 199 uh, higher than I wanted to go with my, my gift guide, but they are the best wireless earbuds that I've used. And I've tested a bunch of them. I know we've mentioned it before, so I'm not going to go too deep into this, but AirPods aren't going to make it out for Christmas folks these things are and i'm not convinced airpods are, are better than Earin anyway uh, in fact at the moment i'm convinced Earin's better because it exists they sound good and really easy to use and the the, the tangle free cord free environment is awesome so that's my uh that's my third addition to the uh to the guide to my guide and we'll we'll add more next week but that's all we got time for today john fun stuff mm. crazy Always so much. Always so much. We told you how to email us. We told you how to find us on Twitter. We would love to see you there. So uh, so come say hi. Ask us. Love us. It's all good. On Twitter? Huh. We're on Twitter. We already oh. mentioned it. Yeah, right. Yeah. At MacGeekCab. That's where you can find us. You can find us off, off from there, too. Good, good stuff. I want to make sure to thank... All our premium listeners, and we told you about premium in the show, but I want to thank everybody that participated that was a premium listener uh, or is. Listener Joe, Ron, I'm going up through our list here because I don't want to miss anyone. Uh, listener Dave, Craig, Bob, Paul, Joe, and Larry, and you too. We really appreciate all of it. Uh, we couldn't do this show without the additional support from you folks and it, it really does make a difference so if you want to learn about Mac Geek Ab Premium visit us at MacGeekab.com or just go to MacGeekab.com slash premium that'll get you right there either way however you want to get there it all works and we really appreciate anything uh, that you wish to contribute I think that's all I got. I want to thank Cashfly, c a c h e f l y dot com, for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Of course, our podcast marketplace includes Harry's, as we mentioned, uh, where coupon code MGG saves you five bucks. SmileSoftware dot com slash geek, where you can give the gift of smile. DroboStore.com, dot com, where MGG twenty saves you twenty percent. FatCatSoftware.com dot com slash MGG otherworldcomputing at maxsales.com, Software at barebones.com, Casper at casper.com slash mgg. Have a great week. Send us all the stuff you can think of. We'll include your gift guide stuff in the next episode. Have a fun time, but not so much fun that you have any trouble because we want to make sure that you don't get caught
0: made up.